Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Unfortunately, I've had to talk a lot about FDIC insurance lately. And with more banks failing and people losing confidence in banks, I've got to give you an update on where we are with how you protect your money. And later, what do proms have to do with inflation? Well, actually, there's some good news on that front. So let's talk banks. Roughly half of Americans in surveys are, to put it not in proper terms, they're freaked out. People are showing a lot of anxiety about their money in the bank, according to Gallup. Just under half of Americans are like, oh no, my money, is it going to vanish? Before you go withdraw your money, dig a hole in your backyard and bury it in it, or as people used to do long ago, put it in their mattress. Don't recommend those things. Let's talk through what's really going on. We've got this limit of a quarter million, and most people just laugh. Like, isn't that a great problem to have? That a quarter million isn't enough. Well, you got to think about the millions upon millions upon millions of entrepreneurs, small business owners that own their own business. They're the ones who have money usually at risk. Because even for a company of somewhere between 10 and 20 employees, there are going to be many cycles during the year where you're going to have more than the FDIC limits in a bank, and you have to worry that anything beyond that is at risk. So close to half of money overall in banks is uninsured. It's beyond the quarter million. And all the wonky people in the banking industry and regulators and in Congress have all been talking about what to do about this. Well, one of the things that has been bandied about recently by libertarian-minded people is that your account, when you sign into your bank app or you sign in on a laptop or on your statement, would have a warning on it that would highlight how much of the money you have is uninsured in that bank. So that it's like hitting you in the head, hey, this money is exposed, this money's at risk. The FDIC is really interested in making sure that people's payrolls are not at risk. And there's been a proposal floating around like trial balloon that company funds needed for payroll would be insured even if it's beyond the quarter million. I mean, there's obviously a problem if you've got nearly half of bank deposits in the United States that don't qualify for insurance. And there's no way for you and me to know, no way for us to know whether or not a financial institution we're putting money in is actually A-OK or not. No way. Bank accounting is mysterious, even to bankers, 
And you never know what's going to cause that run on a financial institution. And with social media, those runs happen at light speed. So in the meantime, regardless of whatever proposals are bouncing around, it's up to you and me to take the necessary precautions. If we do have a large amount of funds, which is a good problem to have, to take the steps necessary to not have to worry that the funds are uninsured and get them insured. And the easiest way is something accessible to most people who have money is most people who have money have a relationship with one of the three big discount brokers. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago with Schwab Fidelity and Vanguard offering you the ability to put your money in FDIC-insured accounts at many different financial institutions, earn higher rates than you can going typically to those institutions directly, and having nearly unlimited access to FDIC insurance by their ability to spread money around. And I've talked about different ways of doing that, what used to be known as a CDARS program, where a registry at a participating institution keeps placing your money at different places so that you never have more than a quarter million in any one place, but you only have to deposit at one. Same idea with Fidelity, Vanguard, and Schwab. You're just going to them, and they handle placing your money. But the one thing not to do is the, what, me worry? Why would I care? Nothing's going to happen until it does. And then the upset you'll feel and the anger and the sense of betrayal if your money vanishes that is beyond the limit of FDIC insurance. And so that's why this is a case where prevention is the best cure. You prevent the problem from ever happening to you by not exposing you yourself to the risk. And as long as you take the necessary steps, you're fine. Uh, One other strategy I've also covered on a prior podcast is if you have a lot of excess money, putting it in a government securities money market fund, either a treasury fund or government securities fund. Again, you do that through discount brokers, and then you have something that likely is even safer than FDIC insurance, or at least equivalent, if not safer, and you'll earn a decent return on your money available to you at any time as you need it, with the interest rate being reset each day based on current interest rates, current market conditions. One thing also that came up the other day, not on the podcast, but it was that I have failed, in this person's estimation, to explain properly the difference between what are referred to in the banking industry as the three types of banks. First, what I refer to as the giant monster mega banks, the four banks that have roughly half a banking in the United States, then the regional banks, which are the ones that have been all in the news with the financial troubles, and then the third category I never really talk about, community banks. When I talk about, and you'll hear me talk about a small local bank, that's a community bank that may have typically one to five branches, and they are local to your area. A regional bank is different. They may be in many states in the country, may have some size to them, and they get bureaucratic and impersonal. 
particularly for a wealthier individual or a business owner, being with a community bank is where it's at. And that's the category that I have failed truly to properly explain. A community bank is one that is in your community. You deal with the top people at the bank. You go and you meet the president of the bank or the chairman of the board. They know you. You know them. And it's a totally different kind of relationship for your company needs, or if you're a wealthy individual, your needs, or your cash flow needs or borrowing needs for your business or you individually. So there you have it. I said it, and I should have been saying that all along. That was almost like a Clark Stinks inside (laughs) the information, Krista. All right, ready for some questions? Sure. Okay, this is from Javier in Maryland. He says, what is the best way to donate to a charity? I've typically used credit cards when donating online because I don't feel comfortable connecting my bank account to their systems, but I know they're charged fees when I donate this way. Do you have a recommendation on the best way to donate? So Javier, why do all charities pretty much accept credit cards? Because people are much more likely to donate if you do donate by credit card. So for the typical charity, they're paying 2.5% to receive that money. But when you look at what it costs a charity to fundraise, that 2.5 is low cost to them in reality. So don't feel guilty about using that credit card to donate to a charity. I think it's okay to do it because they love having your money. But the best way to donate to a charity Do you know? Donate stocks? That's right. I knew you knew the answer. Because if you have stocks in an investment account, and Javier, they've grown in value, under the tax code, you get a twofer. You get a double benefit if you donate what's known as appreciated shares. And any charity pretty much bigger than a little tiny one will be very familiar with this and prepared to receive them. What happens when you donate appreciated shares is you pay no tax on the gain of that stock from when you bought it to when you donate it. But the charitable deduction is based on what it was worth on the day you donate. And so it is a crazy double benefit of the tax code, which is like a rocket booster to the deductibility of your charitable donation. Now, the way a lot of people do this now, particularly if you're dealing with a charity that's smaller and they don't have the sophistication to deal with receiving securities, is you can donate to what's known as a donor-advised fund. This is a very popular thing. You can set up a donor-advised fund for very little money. You don't have ongoing crazy legal accounting or administrative expenses. And you donate the appreciated shares And then from it, you nominate organizations to receive money. And so if you just look, donor advised fund is a search for anyone who has stock investments, that'll make sense. But back to the question you actually asked me, Javier, donating money, however you do it, is very much appreciated by charitable organizations and don't feel guilty about donating with a credit card. Patrick in New York says, Clark, I could use some help. My wife and I are devout members of the Church of Roth, but through a recent promotion, we are now fortunate enough to exceed the limit for a married couple. 
I have about $3,000 in both my wife and my own Roth IRA, respectively. My question is, do we transfer that amount immediately into the traditional IRA and start filling that up, or do we continue to fill up the Roth and do the backdoor Roth all at once, once it's full? Any help is appreciated. Thank you for all you do. Okay, so the income limits for traditional are significantly lower than the income limits for a Roth. So you won't be able, if you can't do the Roth, you can't do the traditional. So that's out. So if you were to go look on Investopedia or many other sites, you'll find a clear explanation of doing the backdoor Roth. You must do it exactly as the IRS requires, or it will be disallowed and you'll have tax and penalty and blah, blah, blah. You don't want any of that. But this is a really good problem to have. Again, we're talking about good problems today because you're earning enough money. You've out-earned your eligibility for a Roth IRA. So the non-deductible IRA, which leads to transferring money to a Roth, requires double work, but gets you around the income limit that exists on contributing to Roth IRAs. David in Virginia says, I have a luxury car to sell. I'm not sure what's the best way to take payment from private buyers. It seems like there's possible fraud or forgery for every method except cash, but we're talking fifty to $60,000. Someone suggested a broker who would sell the car, verify and take payment, and take a commission. Is that possible and is it trustworthy? What are commissions typically? If I don't figure out a solution, I may end up selling to a dealer, Carvana, or CarMax, all of which will undercut the price. Okay, so first of all, the way the broker part of the business typically works is let's say Krista wants to buy a car. And the car buying process for a used car is so confusing and complicated and got a lot of pitfalls and people try to say you junk and all the rest. So Krista might hire a broker to help her buy the car And usually it would be in an auction, but occasionally it would be from a private seller like you, David. And so the broker would find that you had the car that Krista wanted, or in this case, I would have the car. And the broker would would make the deal and you'd pay the commission as the buyer. You're talking about a different circumstance. You already, let's say, have an identified buyer and you're like, what's the safe way to get money? All right. So this past weekend. A friend of ours was out of town, and he had sold an old Jeep. And I didn't know that used Jeeps go for so much money, Krista. It was $10,000. The buyers were paying cash. So a friend of mine and I went to represent the seller and turn over the title and get the cash. And let me tell you, it was weird having $10,000 in cash counted wow, like out. actual cash. Where did you meet? Did you meet in a we public place? We met at, uh, at our friend's house. Oh, this man. Car was in the driveway. Dude, I wouldn't do that. Okay, so wait, wait. So what? the buyers come, <laughs> the buyers come, and uh, we had one of those counterfeit pens to make sure that okay. all the money was good. And the irony of the whole thing, uh, husband and wife came. The wife works for a bank, and she just took the pen, wasn't offended at all, took the pen, and she checked every bill to make sure every bill was okay, and there's a marking that goes on. And so we had the cash, 
uh, nobody bothered us and nobody stuck us up or anything. And Surely you wouldn't recommend Wish that you anyone... wouldn't call me Shirley, but... I mean, surely, though, yeah. certainly you wouldn't recommend that other people just meet at a house. You should probably meet at a public place or a bank. You meet at a police station. Or a police station. Police station's the best to meet at. This is a hard one because of the problem with counterfeit checks, even certified checks, cashier's checks, blah, blah, blah checks. That's why most used vehicle transactions are done in cash. This was a Saturday. The alternative would be during the week, to meet at your bank with the buyer, they come with the cash or they have wired money to that bank and that would be, wiring would be the other safe way. The problem with wiring though is if I'm a buyer and I get there and the vehicle is not as represented or I don't want to do it or the people turned out to be phony balonies, I've already wired money to who knows who. That's why these transactions are dangerous because of the cash involved. And I'd be really interested if anyone in the car business can give us some suggestions how the private seller, private buyer thing should be done in a way that the money is safe to both parties. And you don't have to worry about somebody with a gun saying, give me the 60, because it's 50 or $60,000 yeah, yeah. giving me that. But it's so ironic that I was just part of doing this. And yeah. it wasn't even for me. <laughs> it was for our friend Rich. And uh, the buyers were a kick. They were really fun people. And they're going to have fun with this Jeep. So everybody awesome. went away happy. Okay. Coming up next, something you'll be happy about. It's clear that for wedding season, prom season, all that, that the cost of doing things is going back down. But what are the keys to stretching your dollars with a special event? And with the proms, many places have already happened, some they're still coming. How do people get it done and stretch those dollars? We're going to talk about that. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In a time that the cost of everything has gotten ugly for us, one thing has actually relatively become cheaper, and that is the cost of proms, and I would extrapolate as well, lots of the costs of weddings are actually cheaper than they were before. And there's actually something known as the Prom Price Index. Yes, there really is such a thing. It was created by a professor at Boston University years ago. Professor Zagorski decided this was an area of interest and has been tracking the price of proms going way back. 
And one thing he published and something he wrote about proms is that proms actually go back to the 1800s. I had no idea proms had that kind of history that go back like 150 years. But proms are becoming relatively more affordable because the cost of the clothes for a prom have essentially been going down over time in purchasing power. And the cost of a prom in dollars spent is actually, relative to other things, a lot cheaper than other things have become over time. And I think about this, you know, when we were getting questions about Xi'an, which was all the rage for a while, the Chinese clothing manufacturer and seller that's a huge player now in the United States, I signed up for an account to see what all the deal was. Well, obviously, I'm not their target market because I was getting constant ads from them showing up everywhere I would go on the web on my phone or on a laptop for dresses. And I noticed that depending on time of year, like last year during prom season, I was getting deluged with ads for prom outfits and prom dresses. They were so cheap, it was ridiculous. So I've deleted the app because it was driving me crazy. And I'm not getting the bothering from Shein anymore. But they are part of the picture where clothing is so much cheaper than it used to be. And yes, almost all of it now made overseas, very little domestic content clothing anymore. And that is one of the components that costs so much. But now people are getting so smart about this kind of thing, buying used dresses for weddings. I was reading something recently about how women who are getting married now, and the number of people getting married is way down, by the way, in the United States. People getting married now, women in huge numbers are buying used dresses or not wearing a traditional wedding dress. They may wear a white cocktail dress or not even a white dress anymore. They're just wearing a nice dress they have in their closet. Really rethinking how these things are done to lower the cost. And there's one part that uh, Professor Zagorski talks about that's the one part of proms and, by extension, weddings that is more expensive than it used to be, and that's the food. The food for an event is actually the area that is seeing tremendous cost pressures right now, but the overall cost for doing a special event relative to other things in our lives, becoming steadily more affordable. But then it's all up to you what kind of budget you have for a wedding. A wedding can cost, or a prom, can cost from very little money to a crazy amount of money, depending on what you do. The one thing I'm so happy that's gone away, Krista, those prom limousines. Oh, they're still around. Not nearly what they were, though. You know, those stretchy, stretchy, stretchy limos where they'd go to these, uh, you'd get a a vehicle and they'd go to a specialty shop and they'd take like an Explorer or something and make the Explorer forever long. I don't know how they make any turns with those things, but. They can't. (laughs) I mean, you got to be really careful where you drive. But the market's turned away 
from that kind of thing. And uh, they're much more rare sighting than they used to be. I bet that's a lot because of like Uber and Lyft and stuff too. How did you know? I did you read one assumed. of the stories about this? I didn't. Once in a while, I hit on something. No, that's exactly why. The old why. noggin's still working. No, well, you're a brainiac. <laughs> All right, let's go to questions. Eric in Ohio says, my wife and I are expecting our first child in November. Congratulations. Congratulations. And we are currently still on each of our parents' insurance. We're both 25 years old currently. We are unable to change it to our own insurance until September, which is when I turn 26 and can enroll in my own insurance through work. Because our insurance changes over, we will be paying our doctor's office visits on my wife's parents' deductible. After starting on our own insurance, we will have to start over paying against our own deductible after paying against my wife's current insurance deductible. If this is the case, oh, they're wondering if that's the case. If this is the case, what is the best way to handle this insurance change so that we don't have to start paying our full deductible again in September once we're on our own? Okay, that's why a number of states, I think it's about seven, eight, 10 states, something like that, now have a provision that requires that if you're covered under parents' coverage, that it ends at the end of a calendar year instead of the day that you turn 26. Now, under the federal law that allows you to be covered on your parents' coverage till your 26th birthday, it ends on the day of your 26th birthday unless the employer that you're getting the coverage through from your parents allows the plan to stay in effect till the end of the year. They don't have to unless you're in one of the states that requires it. So you can, you can actually go online and see if the parent state of residence requires that the coverage remain in place through the end of the year. Now, you said something, though, that confused me. You said you turn 26 during the plan year before the baby's born, but if your wife's covered by her parents' insurance, it would be her birthday that would be key because otherwise you're right as I understand the statutes, the deductible starts over and the fact that you've met deductible through this year no longer applies and then you have to do the deductible again. So that's why the best way for this to be handled is if there's any way to maintain coverage through the calendar year and not have to do a deductible again, that would be the best way. But this is one of those areas that is as murky as we could get. That was really a curveball question you've thrown at me, Eric. And so if you look online, you'll find data about it. But if I heard well what you were saying, it seems to me that your wife could stay on her parents' coverage and hopefully her birthday is late enough turning 26 that the coverage would continue through the birth of your child coming. Jeff in Arizona says, you talked about documenting your various login usernames and passwords for others to use in an emergency or upon your death, but you didn't talk about how to deal with two-step verification. That could be a real problem if your cell service has been canceled or your authorized person doesn't have your phone or if they have it, but it's locked and they don't have your passcode. And someone else also mentioned that when someone goes into assisted living or long-term care or nursing home, that a lot of times you, you know, they, people don't have any of their information. So it's important to make sure that you, are, you have access to all of their things because their items may be given away like computers or cameras and they could be, have a lot of personal information on them. So in our case, going back to the first part of this mm -hmm. is 
my wife has my password into my phone. I have her password into her phone. And we each have others, like Krista has my password on my phone. So if Wayne and I died at the same time, you God would forbid. still be able you'd still be able to get in there and you were my backup on Google inactive account manager. Found out that out on a recent podcast. Yes. So, uh, well, because everybody's, you've got to think about this stuff mm-hmm. and you know, you never know when your time is over on earth. You just don't know. Life is so random. And so thinking these things through, and I love you talking Jeff about, the issues of two-factor authentication and where that fits in usually with a code to a phone. So making sure that key others can access your phone, unless they turn out, the friend turns out to be a foe, then you got a real problem, but you're not going to turn out to be a foe, are you? I certainly hope not. And I would also recommend you can usually add backup email addresses and phone numbers if like say the phone got well, that's Ruined. why an active account manager is so good. Yeah, yeah. So the second thing about someone going into assisted living, maybe someone's mental faculties start to decline in whatever the circumstance of that, this is the gray area that becomes really difficult. And so a trusted someone being listed on your accounts as a trusted contact, plus most of the U.S. states now have in place procedures for this where bankers, brokers, mutual fund companies are supposed to act on behalf of the interests of the account in the event the account holder seems to be losing it. That's great because families are spread all over the country. Sometimes adult children aren't aware about mental slipping of a parent, aunt, uncle, whatever. And so these new laws are in place to try to make sure that somebody's money doesn't get absconded with. And I thought this was fun from Rita in Texas. Several years ago, I heard Clark tell his audience how to keep a razor sharp by keeping it dry. My Billy brand razor stays on its magnetic holder in the back shower wall where it's been for over five years and it still makes my legs as smooth as a baby's bottom. I would never have believed it. Same blade all this time. Unbelievable. Thanks, Clark. Okay, so this is really interesting because how you make a blade last is keeping it out of moisture. So whatever this Billy brand, you ever heard of it? My Billy? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, sounds crazy that it can keep its sharpness being around moisture all that time because the key to getting long life out of a blade is drying it after every use. And uh, this is fantastic that yours has made it five years and counting. Longest I made it with the blade was 14 months. And truth be told, it really wasn't still a good blade that far in. It was getting hard with nicks and stuff. And then finally, when I got cut one day, that was it, 14 (laughs) months in, and I replaced that blade. So don't believe those ads from Gillette trying to separate you from being able to retire someday (laughs) by making you think you need to replace their incredibly overpriced blades every four seconds. You don't need to. You can stretch a blade an amazingly long period of time. If you do some minor maintenance on that blade, simply keeping it dry, it'll go on and on 
and on. So thank you so much for being with us today. Remember, we are here to serve you around the clock. Sun never sets on information at Clark.com. We are here to serve you. And 30 hours a week, you can get free one-on-one advice and guidance from our Team Clark Consumer Action Center. You learn everything you need to know about getting that free one-on-one advice we've been offering for nearly 31 years. We're like a Baskin-Robbins of information. All you do is go to clark.com slash C-A-C. Have a great day.